Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop in iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code UNCHAINED10 for a limited time 10% discount. Token Agency is a proven full-service blockchain startup accelerator, helping launch only the best and brightest projects in crypto. With a project acceptance rate of less than 1%, let their team of experienced advisors and marketing specialists build gravity around your company. To learn about their top projects and more, check out tokenagency.com. Unchained is sponsored by Appreciate. Appreciate is building the most valuable relationships on Earth. In each episode of Unchained, Appreciate recognizes an individual or group in crypto for an achievement. Because kindness is contagious. Who in crypto will be recognized today? Stay tuned to find out. I'm recording today from the Coindesk Consensus Conference in New York City. And my guest is Jesse Powell, co-founder and CEO of Kraken. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, Laura. What does Kraken do and how does it distinguish itself from the other crypto exchanges in the space? Kraken is a digital asset exchange. Uh, we trade 17 assets and I'd say we distinguish ourselves with our customer service and our security. And you offer actually quite a number of tokens compared to some of the other exchanges like Gemini and Coinbase. How do you get so many on the platform? Uh, well, we've got a large team of people responsible for managing the token gateways, which is basically the technical work required to process transactions on those networks. Uh, we've also got a team of guys that are evaluating the tokens for you know, listing qualifications. And when you said that one of your priorities is security or one of the ways you distinguish yourself is security, how do you do that when a lot of people talk about how, you know, they, these exchanges are big honeypots and they're on 24 seven, 365. And especially in your case where you have multiple tokens, how do you keep things secure? Yeah, well, with, with a lot of hard work and, and a lot of diligence and just being extremely careful about everything we do all the time, you know, not just at the technical level, but also at the, the personal level, um, you know, in terms of like training our people, how we operate, um, the, the length that we go to to keep things private. Uh, so that could involve creating proxy entities to contract with our service providers, you know, to, to using uh, pseudonyms wherever possible, basically trying to, to keep the entire operation um, as private as possible. Oh, interesting. So contractors don't know that it's a crypto exchange. Wherever possible. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. That's smart. And how do you decide which cryptocurrencies and crypto assets to add to your platform? 
So we've got a very thorough evaluation process. Um, we've got over a hundred things that we look at when evaluating a token from, you know, the, the main thing we're looking at is basically, is this token still going to be around tomorrow? And, um, is it a scam? Uh, you know, we, we do some work on, uh, you know, we, we try to look at like the technical merit as part of that, but the main things are, you know, we just want to, we want to protect people from, from things that are outright scams. And, um, we also look at the technical difficulty of supporting it and continuing to maintain the protocol. Uh, so if it's something that's very early stage, uh, and is going to, going to require a lot of work to maintain, um, that might be something that, that we wait until a further stage of development to list. So anyway, in all it's, it's a, it's a very lengthy process. We spend a lot of resources to evaluate the tokens. So we certainly haven't evaluated every token, uh, but the ones that we do evaluate tend to be the ones that, that our clients are really asking us to, to take a look at. What is a Kraken and why did you decide to name your exchange after it? Yeah, so a Kraken is a legendary sea monster of Norse mythology. And um, I chose the name Kraken because uh, well, it helped that I had the domain. I had actually bought the domain years ago and um, years before Bitcoin. I, I've been collecting domains for a long time. And uh, I thought someday I'm going to do something really cool with Kraken. And uh, so when we got the idea to do a Bitcoin exchange, we we had a lot of ideas for names. And Kraken Kraken was, was always kind of my first choice. And uh, I really had to convince my co-founder that this was a good name to use. And I liked it because it has all the hallmarks of a a great brand. It's short. It's easy to say. It's easy to, to spell. It's fun. And in terms of the exchange business, um, there are a lot of metaphors that we use when talking about markets that, that fit like liquidity and depth and whales and sharks. And, you know, the Kraken is, is, uh, the biggest, baddest beast in the ocean, you know? So it's sort of the, the master of liquidity. Uh, so the name was really, perfect in my mind. And so, um, that's why we went with it. So it's like a Norse sea monster or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Probably like a, a giant octopus. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I personally had to Google that. I was, I knew it was something in that realm, but like, didn't know exactly, but no, I agree with you. It is a good name. Thank like at one, one time I heard, um, Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx talking about how she, you know, became a billionaire and everything. And um, she was saying that she chose the name Sphinx because like she realized that a lot of great brands have the sound K in them, which is really interesting, like Kodak. And I don't uh-huh. remember the other one she listed, but like that was literally like she just played around with different names until she came up with something that had a K sound in it. Wow, that's interesting. So and yours has too. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was who your customers tend to be like, you know, just how would you break them out in terms of who they are and then how much they account for in assets and training volume? Sure. Uh, so we've got several buckets of, of users. Um, you know, there's the, the retail trader. Um, there's the, the, the more kind of professional day trader. There's institutions. There's people that basically know nothing about Bitcoin, but just heard about Bitcoin and want to, want to buy one Bitcoin and hold it. So we, you know, we don't cater to all, all of those equally. You know, I, th- I think some other exchanges do a better job of providing that basic buy-sell experience for the, for the extremely novice user. You know, our, our target 
demographic is more slightly more experienced and, and interested in, in actually doing more trading. So the whole interface and the tools that we provide are all more geared toward that. You may not have read this article, but last summer when I wrote this cover story about initial coin offerings, I had a little sidebar about a trader who used the Kraken platform to turn like $8,500 into $7.5 million in six months yeah. using your leverage trading. Product. Did you read that? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Why don't you describe the leverage trading product? Yeah. So margin trading is basically where you borrow money from, from the exchange to, to make a trade. Uh, so let's say you had like a hundred dollars on your account. You could borrow another $400 from Kraken to, to be able to trade with $500 in total. And there's some risk in doing that because if we ever, you know, we have, we have a formula to determine this, but if it, if it ever appears that you might not be able to pay us back what you've borrowed, then we would liquidate your position. So we would sell everything that you had on your account to get the loan back basically. So there's some risk that you lose everything when you do this. You know, if you started with a hundred, you borrowed 400. So you bought a total of 500 Bitcoin. Well, if your total of 500 Bitcoin got down to be $400 worth of Bitcoin, you know, just a 20% drop, which we see in Bitcoin regularly, we would have basically sold the other 400 and then gotten our loan back, but you'd be left with zero. Well, yeah, that guy that I just mentioned, there was one moment where he nearly lost everything Uh and it was super, super close and somehow it it didn't actually happen. And then, you know, he became a millionaire, but, um, yes, I definitely, I definitely see the risk in that and people at home don't try to do what that guy did. Yeah, definitely know what you're doing before you get into it. And and if you're going to be trading on margin, babysit your position and, you know, you really have to be keeping an eye on it. Um, otherwise, you know, we will liquidate your position if, if it gets too, um, too close to the margin level. Yeah. He basically said that he didn't leave the house pretty much for six months, except to like go buy a sandwich and that he was just on the computer for like 16 hours a day and then would like sleep at night and, and basically just, yeah, was constantly like doing his trades and the second it hit some target point, he would, you know, do a buyer or seller. I don't, I don't remember all the mechanisms, but it sounded intense. Obviously yeah. it panned out for him, but like I said, don't try this at home people because I think that that probably is more the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I agree. One other thing I want to ask you about was your background appears to be in gaming and the arts. Yeah. What were you doing in those fields and how did you come to launch a crypto exchange? Yeah, so um, I've always been a gamer, but since 2001, I had a company selling virtual items and currencies for online games like World of Warcraft Gold, Diablo Swords, RuneScape Gold, MapleStory. We did about 20 different games, and um, our model was basically to to buy virtual goods from China and sell them in the West to mostly... Um, North American and European clients. And it was like Chinese players that were quote unquote mining these digital yeah, assets. Yeah, the, the gold farmers of China, yeah, or who basically guys or bots, um, usually bots, it would be like one guy would be supervising like a hundred bots that, oh, wow. that would be playing the games. They would produce the gold or the, the items and then sell it to us and we would resell them in the West. Interesting. So for people who did not listen to the episode with Brock Pierce, you should check that out because he talks about this business model in depth. And did you know Brock from that time? I did know Brock. Yeah. Back before Bitcoin, we were essentially competitors uh, in in the same business line back then. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I, I wonder if like 
that experience is why people like you and Brock sort of saw the potential in Bitcoin early. Do, do you think so? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, when I read about Bitcoin in early 2011, the potential was immediately clear to me. You know, Bitcoin was solving problems that we had been dealing with in payments uh, for a decade. You know, it was chargebacks, it was transaction fees, it was taking and making international payments. Uh, it was having a client base of kids too young to have a credit card, you know, or have any way to, to pay for something online. So it solved all these problems with payments, but it also solved just real problems that, that real people were having, you know, like kids not having a way to make payments online. Even people, uh, like le legitimate people in a country like Nigeria, you know, you, you could legitimately have a Nigerian prince trying to make a credit card payment to you and you'd be like, yeah, right. You know, no way am I taking your, your credit card payment. But, um, you know, with Bitcoin you could. And so people that have historically been, um, ostracized or excluded from, from the online payments world or the global financial system now had a way to, to make payments and to engage. And so, uh, it was great from that perspective in terms of, you know, financial inclusion. Uh, so, Philosophically, like I've, I really was excited about Bitcoin as well, you know, apart from just the practical applications. And I know at some point in there, you also worked in the arts. So, what exactly happened? You were doing the online gaming business. Yeah. And then, how did the arts thing fit in along with your transition to Bitcoin? Yeah. So, by 2007, the gaming business was doing really well. Um, I had some spare cash and I had a bunch of friends who were artists. And um, they were, you know, the the stereotypical starving artists, you know, working out of their kitchens, um, you know, kind of their, their art studio had taken over their apartment. And I thought, you know, it'd be really cool to give these guys a space to work. And I, and I was familiar with like what Andy Warhol had done with the factory and, and there are other art centers around the country and, and around the world that had brought artists together in one space. And I thought it would just be great to have, a place to give these people, you know, so they could get out of their kitchens and into a studio and also to have a collaborative environment because I, I thought it was, it would be really cool to see what happens when all these artists get together in the same space and can share ideas. And, um, I was living in Sacramento at the time. And, um, I also wanted to have a really great art gallery in Sacramento that could, could do shows like what you would see in New York or Los Angeles. And, um, so, uh, I found this warehouse. It was about 10,000 square feet. And uh, I did it, and I rented it out. I had a three-year lease. I figured, we'll just see how it goes. And um, so I put an ad in the paper offering free studio space to artists. And I would get phone calls like, hey, why are you trying to scam artists? You know, this is evil. Artists are poor. You shouldn't, you shouldn't scam artists. And, um, you know, eventually I had some people come by, and, and some people that were um, well-known in the community started to vouch for the project. And so then I started to get more artists coming in and, and it was great. Um, because, because it was free space, I could be selective about who I took in. And I really just took, um, people that were really serious and really, really great artists in the region. And, um, it but turned wait, out, I, I don't understand the scam part. Uh, how, how could it be a scam if it was free? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess they thought like somehow they were going to come over and I was going to steal all their art supplies or, you know, I don't, I really don't know. Right. Cause they're so valuable. Or maybe I was going to steal their information. Yeah. But yeah, please don't steal from artists. They, they really don't have anything <laughs> to give you. Yeah. Well, having a lot of writer friends, I, I can vouch for that as well. 
Um, but so then keep going with how did you end up in Bitcoin? Uh, so Bitcoin, um, I just randomly read about in, in March of 2011. And, uh, you know, it was, it was obvious to me that this was going to be huge. You know, I was a little bit skeptical at first because we had seen other attempts at making some sort of a, a non-government currency like e-gold um, or the Liberty Reserve. And these things had always just had trouble with regulation. And, and Bitcoin kind of existed outside, outside of that. And so um, I thought, okay, maybe this thing actually has a real shot. And um, nothing ever had existed like it before. And, um, you know, we knew that there was a market for this because you, we would know that, you know, kids are trading their world of Warcraft gold for, you know, brownies at school and stuff. You know, this was like their version of PayPal. This is where they stored their value. And this is where they, they kept their money. It was like in their world of Warcraft account, you know? So there was definitely a class of people that was not being served by the traditional system. Um, and that's just like, you know, when we think of the unbanked, we think of, people, uh, you know, in undeveloped countries, you know, in the countryside, uh, but really like it's all these kids under the age of 18 in the United States are, are part of the unbanked, huh, Interesting. you know, so there's that, but then, yeah, there is everyone else in the rest of the world, everyone without a credit card, you know, or who can't get a bank account because they don't have proof of identity or, or whatever. So, you know, just having dealt with payments issues in the virtual goods business for the last 10 years, you know, up until 2011, um, I just thought this is this has got such huge potential, and I really want to do something to be involved with this. And so, then, how did you end up launching Kraken? So, uh, at first, I was dabbling in in mining, and um, we were trying to figure out ways to get gamers to use Bitcoin more. But um, I think it was just too early, and uh, and mining turned out to be just too much of a headache. And uh, you know, as we've seen, you know, mining has turned out to be really specialized. Um, kind of a scale business. So we got into the exchange thing. We, we were entertaining the idea of doing either a wallet or an exchange. And we decided to go with the exchange after an experience that I had with, with Mt. Gox in June of 2011, which was, um, you know, they got hacked for you know, what we're told at least was a few thousand Bitcoin back then. And, uh, the exchange went down for, for about a week. And, uh, coincidentally an old friend that i had from the high school days roger veer who's um you know now the owner of bitcoin.com and a very controversial fig figure in the community these days very um, he uh, i knew him from playing magic the gathering with him in high school oh wow uh and he happened to be living in tokyo just a few blocks away from the mount gox office and he was into bitcoin at the time as well and um I was trading on Mt. Gox, so I was following the situation closely, and I was talking to Roger. Roger went over to, uh, to the Mt. Gox office and discovered that it was just Mark, Carpellas, and one other person who he had hired yesterday, you know, who were there, like serv these two guys, basically one guy, you know, and, and who had um, been servicing like the entire Bitcoin community, and he had like 60,000 users at the time. And, and what would you know what the trading volume or the dollar amount or anything was um, at that time? I don't remember what the amounts were. The Bitcoin volumes were insane though, right? They were like hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin a day because a Bitcoin was like wow. a dollar. So wow. uh, Bitcoin wise, it was huge, but dollar wise, I don't think it, it you know, it wasn't right. like the numbers we're seeing today, like billions of dollars right. traded. Uh, so Roger found like two people in the office and uh, offered his help to Mark and Mark took it and, and um 
you know, told Mark as well that, that I would be willing to come out and help. And fortunately the, the virtual goods business at the time was basically on autopilot and, um, and I was able just to take off the next morning and go to Tokyo. And so, um, they invited me out to help and I spent about a week and a half in the office at Mount Gox in Tokyo, just helping them get things back together. Like, uh, I wrote the press release for the incident, helped them hire a bunch of people, uh, helped them build like a support team to answer all the tickets. Uh, and so by the end of that experience, you know, I came back to the States thinking there's gotta be another exchange. We can't have the whole ecosystem dependent on this one exchange because when Mt. Gox was down, everything was down. I mean, we had no price discovery. Uh, merchants could not convert their Bitcoin into dollars, which was important for them because, you know, they were paying their bills in dollars. So I thought, you know, for Bitcoin to really go mainstream, we're going to need to see in exchange, you know, also more redundancy in exchanges broadly, but in exchange, it's really doing things the right way, professionally putting security first, um, taking a very careful and cautious approach and working with the regulators to kind of build bridges to the traditional financial system. And so I talked to my, my uh, CTO at Loot, which was the, the virtual goods business, and asked him if he'd be willing to, to do a crypto exchange. And um, he was all on board with it. He had been himself um, writing bots for, for markets, and uh, he's always, always been interested in trading and, and money, and um, also a big believer in Bitcoin. And um, if, if not for somebody like him, I wouldn't have even thought to do it, because the guy's the best hacker I've ever met, you know, the best security mind that I've ever met. And I knew that that was, you know, just coming out of the Mt. Gox experience, security was something that we were going to have to put absolutely first and not compromise on. And um, he was definitely the guy to do it. So I, I wouldn't have imagined doing it without somebody like that, because that was the first thing that, that we would have to get right. When did you launch Kraken? So we launched the exchange actually in in beta in May of 2013, and then with real money trading in September of 2013. Okay. Well, I would have to say if you were mulling between wallets and exchanges that you chose the better option. Yeah, thank you. It seems <laughs> uh, so. The more lucrative so. one, at least. So you brought up regulation a few times, and I wanted to talk about that because you recently refused to answer a request from the former now, or then New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, which uh, was a request to answer a bunch of questions about your business, about the crypto exchange business. What did you respond, and why did you decide to respond that way? Yeah, I, I saw it as more of a demand than a request. I mean, it came with a deadline of two weeks to produce this like 40-point uh, questionnaire. And, um, you know, I felt like th my, my first reaction when getting that was like, this is a total slap in the face. Like those are the words in my mind. Turns out this guy's actually slapping people in the face in his spare time. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, or so they say, when, yeah, so they say allegedly, you know, it, it, when it, it came to me, I, I was just offended by it because we had put all this effort into New York years ago and the the bit license got like 3000 plus comments on it and what we got out of it was a disaster and so we left new york and we've had no business in new york since then and um this request from schneiderman it came out of nowhere you know most when, when most regulators or government want to know something they'll reach out privately they'll try to have a conversation but this just came out of nowhere we'd never heard from schneiderman before and it seems like 
he didn't even talk to the DFS before sending this out. It was like a total publicity stunt. You know, rather than going to get help from from your own government, you're coming to like put this burden on all the all the exchanges to produce this. And we all produced most of this back before the bit license emerged. So um, New York has this information. And a lot of it's on the website, um, and a lot of it's private. And, and you know, frankly, the government doesn't have a good track record of keeping information private. You know. But wasn't that information initially collected like in 2013 or 2014 or something? Yeah, by the so, DFS. I mean, now it's right. 2018. So yeah, so some of it's been has been refreshed. But you know, the what does the AG have to do with any of this? Isn't isn't the DFS responsible for this? You know, and, and why do you need to make this public announcement out of it? You know, it just seemed like a, a, a publicity stunt uh, that was devoid of any real concern because he had just gone about it. I think the wrong way, you know, he could have had these conversations separately, but to, to make this public announcement, like he's, he's the new law in town, you know, and he's going to hold everybody uh, to task is, it just rubbed me the wrong way. It came off as bullying. And, you know, I just had this smell that this guy's like a bully, you know, and, um, I probably wouldn't have said anything, but for the other exchanges coming forward and saying things like oh this is great we're happy to work with regulators and you know we're going to respond to this and i just felt like this is the wrong kind of attitude to have i mean we have to put our foot down somewhere we can't just bend over backwards every time any random regulator in the world uh, you know in this case not even a regulator but just like a law enforcement um, official comes forward and, and demands things you know on a deadline especially from places where we don't even have service so uh, you know, who is this guy? And, you know, I, I can't stand bullies and I can't stand hypocrites. And, you know, this guy turns out to be both. So I'm glad that I gave him the response that I did. And have you written off New York completely as a place where you'll do business? We would be willing to come back to New York. It would take probably a, a dramatic change to the bit license to do it. You know, right now, the United States altogether is only 20% of our business. So, you know, you can imagine what, what piece of that New York is and how, how significant we think New York is to our global business. So it's incremental revenue at this point. You know, and the question for us is with limited resources, should we put them into New York or should we put them somewhere else? You know, where we have, you know, prime ministers all over the world asking for meetings to help them uh, craft regulation in their countries. Why should we waste time? You know, we already wasted so much time on New York. It seems like a lost cause. But do you think that your response might have hurt the chances that the bit license would be revised in a way that's favorable to your business? No, I don't think so. You know, hopefully, hopefully it sends the message that, you know, we're not ready to, to give in to this bit license and that something needs to be done. And I think some, some people in New York have recognized that, that, that there needs to be a change if New York wants to see more businesses come in. Did, they, did the attorney general's office respond to you? No, there was no official response. There was some response, like unofficially, uh, something about um, legitimate businesses would love to provide this information or something along those lines, you know, as if we don't have anything better to do. You decided to exit Japan mm -hmm. as well. And I, I read that you, you were saying that your market share there combined with the increased regulation were the reasons that mm -hmm. you decided to leave. But when you couple that along with your response to uh, Eric Schneiderman, do you feel like that may indicate to some people that Kraken is not welcoming a regulation? I guess it may give that impression. You know, I think we explained that in the blog post. 
but um, you know, we we worked quite extensively with the regulator in Japan to actually to craft that legislation and to to develop the, the Virtual Currency Act. Uh, so, you know, we spent significant resources into to basically building that whole industry in Japan. You know, we're, we're the oldest surviving exchange in Japan, um, and uh, we we had every intention to go through with with completing the process. For a couple of reasons, we we didn't get entirely through it. You know, we I think maybe focused too much on regulation and not enough on actually developing the business in Japan. You know, so we didn't we didn't spend anything on marketing. You know, some of our, our domestic Japanese competitors did spend quite a bit more on marketing. Seemed to gain more traction. Meanwhile, we were distracted with um, the regulation side of things. So, you know, I think what ultimately turned out to be a good thing for Japan was not necessarily a good thing for us. And in getting through the process. Our global business, we were the only exchange to apply for the license that had a global a global business. Um, those were all Japanese exchanges. And so the complexity of our global business turned out to be a big problem um, because Japan felt like to understand really the risk of our Japanese business, they had to really understand the whole picture, like the parent company and the other subsidiaries in the organization and how everything all worked together. And that was... A substantially broader and more complicated task than um, than just like auditing the Japanese entity. You know, it was going to be basically many audits on many entities and um, a lot, a lot more work. And um, it became even more work after um, one of the largest Japanese exchanges got hacked for about five hundred million dollars. So we were, you know, in most of the way through the process when it happened, but that also dramatically increased the scrutiny on us and the FSA felt like before they give away any more licenses they were going to have to go even even deeper than they already were and so it just became this kind of moving goalpost situation where we felt like we had done so much work already and now suddenly we're being asked to do even more work and we have this global business and um, we just were not prepared to you know there was some deadline to get all this stuff done as well and um, we just weren't prepared to divert all these resources to getting this done at that time. So I think what we'll do is, um, so we took a step back, you know, we got out of the process of, of um, the filing and we decided, okay, we're just going to, we're going to reapproach this on our own timeline. Uh, we'll get out of Japan for now. You know, we're not giving up much cause we didn't have much, much market share there. Uh, um, we'll take our time and, and work on doing all these things they want us to do, which is, you know, like audits on all these various entities. And, um, you know, it's not easy to get an audit in this industry. So, um, we'll just reapproach it. You know, we'll, we'll probably take the next, um, six to 12 months and, and work through the process of getting everything together that they wanted. And then we'll go back to them and see if, if there's still something to do in Japan. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you might, you might reenter that market. Yeah. When I combine everything with your letter to Eric Scheinerman, a little bit the Japanese thing, I mean, it sounds like that's a more nuanced picture that involves business considerations more. But if I think about all those things, and then last night, it was announced that you and Kraken are donating $1 million to Coin Center and also matching additional donations for the rest of the month. Yeah. Putting all that together, it almost seems like you have some statement you want to make about regulation. You can tell me if you don't, but if you do, what is that statement? Sure. Um, actually, we made that commitment to Coin Center even before the the Schneiderman thing oh. came up. Okay. Uh, okay. It was just announced last night. We've always been you know, from from day one. 
we knew that we had to engage with regulators. So it's not something we're trying to, to turn away from at all. Um, you know, we've, we've spent significant resources on regulation and trying to understand how to comply with the law, um, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And um, we spent millions of dollars on legal counsel. Uh, so certainly not something we're trying to avoid. Um, the Coin Center donation, I think, is a reflection of, of just all the great work that Coin Center is doing. You know, I, I'm just all the time always impressed by the work that they do. Um, I'm always able to point regulators to, to work that Coin Center has done. Um, they're thinking on the topic of cryptocurrency and the law around cryptocurrency is, is just rock solid always. And so, you know, having run a nonprofit myself, I know that you tend to waste a lot of time trying to raise money and not actually working on the, the objective, you know, the actual um, thing that you're trying to do. And so, you know, we were fortunate to have a great year last year and fortunate to finally to be in a position to, to donate back to Coin Center. Um, you know, they've given so much to the community and to the industry. Uh, it, I'm just proud to be able to, to support them even further, and I hope that they can do even more great work with the money. And so you don't have a larger statement about regulation? I hope that that, we're, that the regulators listen to guys like Coin Center um, because I think they have a very fair and um, impartial approach to to what should be done. You know, they're, they're kind of defending the, the technology and, and defending consumers from the perspective of providing choice in technology and, you know, making sure that this technology doesn't somehow get suffocated before it really has a chance to flourish. So, um, you know, my, my statement to the regulators, well, I have a lot of statements I make to regulators, but, you know, I think our industry is global and, and these regulators tend to look locally and they tend to enforce locally. And I think that governments need to look at crypto more from a, you know, it should really be looked at from like a national security perspective um, because it's more than just protecting people from, from fraud. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a, a technology like the internet. You know, what, what would it mean to to dramatically limit the way that the internet was used. You know, it, it could mean that your country joins the rest of the world in you know, some kind of economic revolution, or it could mean you're like stuck in the dark ages. So I think we need to be really careful about how we regulate crypto and make sure that we don't go too far to exclude our country from participation in this great new technology. We're going to discuss a little more regulation, plus Wall Street and more. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors. Token Agency is a proven full-service blockchain startup accelerator, helping launch only the best and brightest projects in crypto. With a project acceptance rate of less than 1%, let their team of experienced advisors and marketing specialists build gravity around your company. Today's highlighted project is the Tech Coast Angels and Wharton Alumni Angels backed VU, spelled VU for Virtual Universe. View is an epic, story-driven, open-world adventure powered by virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and blockchain. Founded by proven gaming developers with multiple exits, the View token empowers players to participate and build value inside the virtual universe in fun and creative ways. 
To schedule a demo with the founders inside the virtual universe alpha, resembling Westworld, go to viewtoken.io, that's viewtoken.io, and check out tokenagency.com to learn more. Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked. Computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. KeepKey is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at ShapeShift. KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which renders it useless even if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your keep key is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line, you'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit keepkey.com to order yours today and use the code UNCHAINED10 for a limited time 10% discount. Now it's time to recognize someone in crypto, sponsored by Preciate. Today we are recognizing Mike Saul, co-founder of Unbox Research, for advancing our understanding of crypto asset valuations. In a recent article on Medium, Mike built on the work of John Pfeffer, Chris Berniski, Vitalik Buterin, and Alex Evans, and added, and added interesting layers including timing of transactions into his calculations. Thank you, Mike, for sharing your knowledge with the rest of us. Appreciate welcomes Unchained listeners to nominate a friend to get props on a future episode of Unchained. Just go to appreciate.org slash recognize. That's appreciate.org slash recognize. I'm speaking with Jesse Powell of Kraken. What do you think the ideal crypto regulation looks like? Well, I, I think first, first rule is do no harm. You know, um, I think that there's already a lot of regulation out there that, that covers crypto. I think the regulator really just needs to, to take care. You know, it, it depends on what, what are the public policy goals and are, are your objectives already covered by existing law in some way um, or does existing law in some way impede upon the development of crypto? And, um, you know, if, if there's nothing there already in the way, I think just taking some time to wait and see how things develop, I think is the best way to go. If you can't, wait and see how things develop. I think creating some sort of um, environment where you can keep an eye on things like a, a sandbox type thing where you can have companies register and, and you can have a dialogue with them and you can keep an eye on them. Uh, I think that works really well. You just don't want to jump the gun and, and go too far um, because it's really hard to predict how things are going to develop. And I know you work in multiple jurisdictions. Like, for instance, I think Europe is your biggest market. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So are there any particular regulators that you think are doing an especially good job? Um, you know, Europe so far has, has been pretty hands-off with the regulation. Uh, so I wouldn't point to anyone in particular, you know, in Europe that has, like, the perfect crypto regulation. So far, there hasn't really been any crypto regulation in Europe. It seems like Malta is making a play to be a crypto player. But yeah, I wouldn't say, you know, I think the VC act in Japan is really you know, the first decent example of like a comprehensive regulation. The one that you helped. To. Yeah. Okay. You're also the only exchange I believe that offers leverage trading of crypto fiat pairs, at least here in the U S market. Is that correct? Um, that may be possible. There are some other exchanges that offer it. I don't know if they're servicing the U S. Okay. What are the challenges in offering that? 
And how do you make it happen? Technically, it's a really difficult thing to do because you have to um, you have to keep track of these balances and, and the amount of um, credit kind of allocated at all times and, and what the liquidation points are. So it uh, it significantly complicates the technology. You were taking a task for your servers being offline for two days in January for a system up- upgrade, mm-hmm. and you also suffered an Ethereum flash crash due to a DDoS attack. What mistakes did you guys make that allowed those events to happen? Yeah, so the um, the Ethereum flash crash was was not actually due to a DDoS attack. Um, you know, it, it's actually not entirely clear that there was a real DDoS attack. You know, it, it's hard to know um, whenever you you have a service outage because of a tremendous amount of traffic. It's, it's, you know, kind of on the scale of things like you don't know how much of it, uh, at least immediately is, is real legitimate traffic and how much of it is denial of service traffic. Uh, so around that flash crash, it just, I mean, we've, we've looked at all the, the records extensively. We've tried to, to determine whether somebody, it seems like somebody was attempting to intentionally cause that to happen and we couldn't find any evidence of it. But what it looks like was just naturally, there were a lot of people that were very long Ether, so they had a lot of margin trades open. They borrowed a lot of of currency to buy Ether. Um, and then when the price of Ether started coming down, there were a couple, a couple cells just in a row that kind of drove the price down to a point where you had one liquidation, and that liquidation... You know, when we liquidate, we sell. So that sold. That drove the price down a little more. That caused another liquidation, which caused another. And so you have this cascade of liquidations that ultimately drove the price down a lot. And that is natural market behavior. I mean, th- everything worked as it should have. Um, and those are just, that is one of the, the big risks in trading on margin is that you can be caught up in one of these uh, cascading liquidations and um, you might be forced to sell your position at a very adverse price. Yeah, the same thing happened on GDAX. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they you know, halted their margin trading and haven't even brought it back yeah. since. In general, how do you keep the exchange running 24-7-365? And how do you prevent further situations like these ones we just talked about? Yeah, so, I mean, with regard to, to the outage and, and the 24-7-365 operation, I mean, this is something that traditional markets have not dealt with, right? They're operating 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, um, we've got to keep it going continuously, 24/7, 365. It's um, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, you know, we sometimes you just need to have downtime. Um, in the case of our two days, we basically we're coming off of a um, many months of of really having um, a poorly performing service at, at peak times, which which was a really bad user experience, and um, we could have done more work to ahead of time to better prepare for. The transition over to so we replaced the trading the old trading engine with a new trading engine that required a significant amount of downtime while we kind of switched over uh, and tested things before we put it back online and in testing we we just discovered that there were some flaws in the production environment that we hadn't discovered in the testing environment and the two environments were not identical they were extremely close but not entirely identical and we could have, you know, the, the really right way to do this if you have an unlimited amount of time and resources is just to, to have your test environments just be identical to your production environments in every way. And you'll have like many sets of, of hardware in your system replicated many times um, to be able to do this. But we didn't have all that set up. And so 
we could have set all that up, but that would have delayed by several more months, the, the upgrade. And so we thought from testing, you know, we're, we're like 99% sure this is going to work. Um, but when we got it into production, we started to find things and then it, it, you know, it was like one of the strings you like, you pull at it and it starts to like, you just, it un, un, revealed, uh, kind of more, more like a, a deeper problem. And it took a long time really to like actually get to what the source of the problem was. And so, um, we just couldn't bring the exchange back online It rolling back would have been just, we really needed to, to figure that out in production. There wasn't a way to really roll back to the old system and then like work out the problem in, in te- the test environment further. So we kind of just had to stick with it. We didn't know how long it was going to take and we expected it was going to take a few hours to do the transition. It ended up taking two days. Unfortunately, you know, we definitely didn't expect it. We certainly learned a lot from it, but now that that's done, you know, it, it immediately solved the problem that people had been having for months. And so I think if you ask anybody, they would say it was totally worth it to have, you know, now a fully functioning exchange um, rather than kind of a crippled exchange again for, for months while we try to work out this perfect test environment. And if you have to do that type of upgrade again, then are you going to build a production, I mean, sorry, a test environment exactly the same as the production environment? Yeah, yeah. now we have the time to do that. That's in process now. So any other major upgrade like that would definitely um, be tested in an environment that's basically identical to the production environment. Traders on your site don't receive 1099Ks that help them calculate their capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. Do you have a plan to offer such reports or plans to help customers in some other way with their capital gains tax preparation? Yeah, we do have some um, some plans in the works for, for providing some tax tools for people. We don't offer anything at the moment. Uh, you can export your history. There are a couple other services that do provide kind of log parsing and, and tax support for Bitcoin. Uh, is quite complicated, especially if you're doing margin trading and especially if you are buying and selling Bitcoin outside of a single exchange. You know, you have to identify what your cost basis is and before you transferred it in or, um, or what you did with it after you transferred it out. So, you know, just uh, the picture from one exchange may not be at all complete. You really need to put together all the information from everywhere. And I think that some... Some services that that provide support for for all the exchanges together have a better opportunity to really provide kind of the comprehensive report that people really need. Yeah. And for listeners who want to know more about this, I covered all things tax and crypto back in January, I think it was. And they indeed did say that some of these reports are misleading from some of the exchanges because you do really need to, to calculate it from where you bought it. So if you bought it on a different exchange, then... Um, you would need to figure out what your tax basis is from that point. You've only raised $6.5 million compared to Coinbase's $200 million. How does your strategy differ in a way that allows you to not need to raise more money? Actually, we raised more like 12. You're probably oh, looking at Crunchbase or something. I did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks um, for the correction. Yeah. We yeah we raised about 12. Um, so we did a, a, a Series A. It was about $5 million, And then um, we did another one, a, another round later privately, uh, that was about another 6 million. Uh, so, you know, I guess we just, we've been more efficient with capital. You know, Coinbase has explored a lot of things, you know, they're they're doing a lot of stuff, but you know, they've, they've also, um, there's a trade-off for that too, right? I mean, they were, they were able to continue building through kind of the downturn in the market and that's because they had all this capital to do it. And so, 
you know, that has its advantages in, in just being able to, being well positioned and being strong uh, to be able to handle like a giant wave of growth. And, you know, maybe they might be more prepared than we were, you know, say, you know, because like the, the downtime is an example of this, you know, they might've had the resources to really develop all the, the test suite and all this stuff properly. Whereas um, there was a period of time where, you know, we laid off half the company because things were so tight and because the market was, was bearish and we were just kind of in this um, like 2014, 2015, we were just kind of flatlined, you know, the market wasn't growing. And that was when we really like scaled back and we were just kind of like in survival mode for like two years. Well, had we raised a hundred million dollars, we would have been able to continue to build throughout that time really toward the future, you know, instead of being kind of behind and having to, to like try to catch up when the next wave hit. So, so, I, you know, I think we're, we're very strongly positioned today, but you know, there, there is something to be said just for having, a giant war chest to be able to build through a downturn and not have to, to make cuts. Does um, that mean, that you're, th- does that, mean that you're thinking about taking on more funding? Uh, no, actually, I mean, we're doing so well now that, that there would be no reason to take on funding unless there were some like massive, like $500 million acquisition or something like that, that, that we wanted to do. What are your revenues? Uh, I'm not willing to disclose that, but they're good. Intercontinental Exchange is working on a platform to trade Bitcoin, and Goldman is also working on opening up a trading operation, although they're apparently not going to be trading crypto assets directly at first. Do you worry about these incumbents from the traditional financial services sector entering the space, or do you not consider them competitive with you? I think if those guys get in, I would consider it you know, a massive win for the entire industry and, and ecosystem. I think they will open up um, crypto to even more users and, and bring it even further toward the mainstream. So generally, I think that's fantastic. As a business, you know, I don't really see it. I don't see it as direct competition. You know, they're, they're going to increase the size of the pool by bringing more people in. And I don't think that they're going to be as agile as we are. And, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to evaluate and add tokens as fast as we can. Um, I don't think they're going to be as understanding of what the market really wants. Um, you know, we're, we've, we've got so much institutional knowledge, you know, we've been in the space for so long now, you know, the company's nearly seven, seven years old. I think we really understand what people in the crypto space want. And so, um, you know, I think we're better able to provide service to them. And, and so I think we've got a strong competitive edge there. You know, I think, I think, you know, if NASDAQ starts trading crypto, that may be the first stop for, for new people coming in. But I think as they, um, develop more interest and understanding that, that maybe they'll come over to us for more kind of specialized um, services. And you recently hired Steve Hunt, the former CTO of Jump Trading, which is a high-speed trading firm. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, as I mentioned, we're seeing this convergence of traditional Wall Street and crypto. So how do you think that will play out? What direction would you like to take the company in the next few years as the ecosystem develops? Yeah, so actually we've hired quite a few people out of traditional financial firms uh, lately and we're seeing even more interest coming in like a lot of people coming in from traditional finance and wall street who who want to work at kraken just reaching out to you cold yeah oh wow yeah i mean it's really surprising it's it's, you know completely the opposite of of where we were like five years ago uh so um i think it's really exciting um and i think we'll we'll see more of that and I think that, you know, this is maybe another reason why 
the traditional players may have a harder time um, getting into the space because you know their best and brightest are, are leaving to go join crypto companies now. So um, you know, I think it's it's great for the crypto companies to have you know what traditionally had been you know I don't come from the world of financial services and um, neither does my co-founder and um, you know having those people with that institutional experience um, come into Kraken and, and teach us everything that they know from that world is really great. I think it's going to help us professionalize and, and, you know, help further kind of build those bridges to, to the mainstream. And so when you think about like how this is going to develop with both sides kind of coming together, how would you like to position Kraken? You know, I, I hope to continue on with the original mission, which was to, to really be the, a professional compliant service that, um, that people can look to and, and trust and, um, is seen just as capable as any of the traditional financial institutions out there, you know, that, that people trust and, and can rely on for the crypto exchange. All right. Last question, which is sort of like tips for listeners. Mm-hmm. I know that you think security is a big uh, focus and uh, you have also wrote, written a number of blog posts that talk about how people should secure their coins. What tips mm-hmm. would you give people for securing their crypto? Yeah, well, I, you know, the the hack that every everyone is getting hit with these days is the the mobile phone hijacking, and we have a blog post about this and how to secure your mobile phone as well. But you know, we see mobile phone numbers are stolen, and that's used to get access to email accounts, and then the email account is used to get access to everything else. So that I'd say is is the prime you know problem. Um, I'd say like use two factor on everything. Don't use SMS for two factor. Try to use a YubiKey or Google Authenticator. Try to keep your involvement with crypto private as much as you can. You know, don't advertise all over your LinkedIn profile if it's not necessary. You know that you're into crypto because the hackers are they're scouring LinkedIn and they're scouring Twitter, and this is how they build their target list for people to go after. Uh, keep as much personal information about yourself and your family off the internet as possible. You know, I know that this is has come to light more recently with all the Facebook stuff, but. Really, um, you know, most people have just revealed everything about themselves online, and you know, service providers are still very far behind in, in how they handle security. You know, they'll, they'll ask you questions about your personal life that are available to the public on Facebook. You know, like, what's your mother's maiden name? Well, I can just go to your Facebook account and see what your mom's name is. You know, and and then answer that question, and that's like a security question, quote unquote. You know, yes, so quote unquote. Um, people, I think need to just take more care of their privacy online. And we're seeing how much this really matters now with, um, with how the data is being used against people. Yeah. It amazes me that you said that the most common attack vector is still that the phone hijacking one, because I wrote the article about it too. And that came out uh, like a year and a half ago. So it's kind of sad that, um, I think people are still, they haven't, I think they haven't taken it seriously. You know, it's something like if it hasn't happened to you or someone you immediately know, you just don't, you think like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not a, I'm not a target or whatever, you know, but they have their list and and they go down it. And, um, you know, in some cases people even have called their phone company to ask them to put security codes on it, but you call them a hundred times and you just get that one agent, you know, there's, most most of the time there's not like a technical impediment to to doing this it's just like the agent is supposed to follow the notes on the account and one in a hundred times you get that agent that just doesn't read the note and he does the change and then you're screwed 
Yeah. Yeah. This happened to Ryan Selkis last week. Yeah. We right. both surmised that maybe it has to do with his appearance on my show where we criticized XRP, but who knows? It's not clear. But um, yeah, his phone number was stolen then, and, and then his Twitter was hacked. Uh-huh. Um, but he got everything back as far as I understand. But you're right that, um, you know, they impersonated him and they probably tried a bunch of times, but it was somebody in like a foreign country that went into a store. So. Yeah, we've seen yeah people showing up with fake IDs to stores as well. It's, oh, so wow. it's not just calling online. Well, you know, okay. It's very yeah. brazen. All right. Well, on that sort of depressing <laughs> note, um, it's been great having you on the show. Where can people get in touch with you or learn more about Kraken? Thanks for having me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at JessPow, J-E-S-P-O-W, um, and they can go to Kraken.com or blog.kraken.com for more information about the company. Great. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jesse, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Rahul Singaretti, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.